Thank you, Ruby. It's an honor to share the stage with you. And I thank uh, the All About Women Festival for inviting me to be here. So to tell you a little bit about the background of the book, and I'll be reading sections of the book as well. Uh, the book took about 10 years of research to, to find out exactly what I wanted to write. So at the beginning, I knew that I wanted to write about how the violence in Mexico was affecting women. Up until then, we have actually a genre of literature called narco literature, had been very male-driven, as well as the media was extremely male-driven. So I wanted to find out what was happening with the women. So initially, for about two years, I interviewed women of drug traffickers, mostly women who were in hiding, and uh, wrote journalistic pieces about drug culture and uh, what their lives were like. One of my favorite questions, of course, was to ask the women, what did he buy you? And I was always uh, uh, amazed at how banal everything was and always thinking of Hara Arendt and the banality of evil. Uh, I remember one woman who was the wife of a very famous pilot of a drug trafficker said to me, ah, you know, he, he flew me to San Antonio, Texas, and he bought me a leather jacket. And I just wondered how many people had died because of that leather jacket. So I was doing that for about two years, and then in Mexico City, I met a woman from Guerrero. Guerrero is the part of Mexico where the famous port city of Acapulco is. Uh, and I said, so what's happening in Guerrero with, with the violence? Which It's probably one of the most dangerous places on earth. And she said, oh, you know, it's really bad. They're stealing our girls. And I said, you know, what do you mean? And she said, yes, I mean, these... Uh, men in SUVs drive around the countryside looking for girls that they can steal. And what we're doing is that we're digging holes in the ground. And when we see those SUVs coming, we quickly put our girls in the ground and we cover the little hole with, with palm fronds and, uh, and hope for the best. So that was when I knew that that was what my book was going to be about the most, most vulnerable women, girls in Mexico. I couldn't sleep for nights thinking of those little girls in the holes. It was sort of a, a cross between thinking of a rabbit warren with their little hearts beating down there and a living grave being buried alive. So I'll read this moment um, in the novel where the hole is described. The hole was too small. My father had dug it up when I was six years old. I had to lie down on my side with my knees at my chest like skeletal remains of ancient burials I'd seen on television. I could see slivers of light peer in on me through the thatch of leaves. I heard the sound of a motor approach. The ground above me trembled as the SUV drove up to our small house and stopped in the clearing, right above the hole and above me. My small space became dark as I lay in the shadow of the vehicle. Through the leaves, I could see the SUV's underbelly, a web of tubes and metal. Above me, the motor was turned off. 
I could hear the sound of the handbrake as it was cranked into place. The car door opened on the driver's side. One brown cowboy boot with a high but square and manly heel stepped out of the car. Those boots did not belong to this land. No one wore boots like that in this heat. As he stood with the car door open, he looked straight at my mother. From the hole, I could see only his boots and her red plastic flip-flops face each other. Good day, mother, he said. The man's voice did not belong to this land. The boots and his voice were from the north of Mexico. Is it always this hot here, he asked. How hot do you think it is? My mother did not answer. Ah, mother, put down that gun. The other car door opened. I could not swivel in my hole to try and look around, so I just listened. From the passenger side of the SUV, another man stepped out. Do you want me to shoot her missing? The second man asked. He coughed and wheezed after he spoke. He had an asthmatic voice from the desert, a voice of rattlesnakes and sandstorms. Where's your daughter, huh? The first man asked. I don't have a daughter. Ah, yes, you do. Don't lie to me, mother. I heard a bullet hit the SUV. The vehicle shook above me. I heard the bratata explosion of machine gun fire along with the sound of the bullets breaking up the adobe brick walls of our home. Then it stopped. The jungle swelled and contracted. Insects, reptiles, and birds stilled, and nothing rubbed against anything. The sky darkened. The machine gun had fired the wind out of the mountain. We were your best hope, mother, the first man said. I birthmarked the place, didn't I? I heard the second man say through a shrill wheeze that became a whistle. The two men got back in the car and slammed the doors shut. The driver turned the key and started the motor. When he placed his boot on the accelerator above me, my hole was filled with the vehicle's exhaust fumes. I opened my mouth and breathed in the noxious smoke. The car backed up and drove off down the path. I breathed deeply. I took in the poison as if it were the smell of a flower or fruit. My mother made me spend the next two hours in that hole. You're not coming out until I hear a bird sing, she said. It was almost dark when she pulled the fronds off the hole and helped me out. Our little house was sprayed with dozens of bullets. Even the papaya tree had bullet wounds and sweet sap oozed from the holes in the soft bark. Just look at that, my mother said. I turned. She was pointing at the hole with her finger. I peered in and saw four albino-shelled scorpions there, the deadliest kind. Those scorpions showed you more mercy than any human being ever will, my mother said. She took off one of her flip-flops and killed all four in beating blows. Mercy is not a two-way street, she said.
So that's one of the scenes with the holes. Even though I did the research on these girls being stolen, I actually never met uh, a girl who came back. And, but in order to write the novel, I did bring a girl back. I, I invented that she came back. And, uh, and that was when the research of talking to the women of drug traffickers actually became very important for the book because I knew exactly where she'd been taken. I had been, I heard all about these ranches, what they were like, what was in them, what, what, the, what these um, drug traffickers were buying. And I should add that, you know, it sort of sounds simple to say drug traffickers, uh, but actually these are really uh, transnational mafia groups that deal in all kinds of criminal activities. So they deal in, yes, in the, in the trafficking of drugs, these days specifically heroin, and the poppies are grown in Guerrero, and state-of-the-art laboratories for making heroin into, making the poppies into heroin paste are in Guerrero. But they also deal in the trafficking of girls, which is the gift that keeps giving because you can sell a bag of, of drugs once, but you can sell a girl several times, several times a day. They also steal people to pick crops or to build the tunnels. I'm sure you've heard about these incredible state-of-the-art tunnels that are built between Mexico and the United States. Well, we all wonder where are the people that built them. They seem to build them and disappear. We also have doctors who are disappeared because, of course, these people get sick also or they get injured by bullets. We have IT engineers that disappear because, of course, they want internet the way we do. And so there's all kinds of missing people. And of course, these organizations also deal in kidnapping, extortion, and money laundering all over the world. So they're very complex uh, criminal organizations. So what happened, which was um, quite sort of strange, was that I, the book came out, and uh, the part that had to do with the ranches at the north of the border were published in what would be the equivalent of a very important news magazine. Uh, let's say if you were in the UK, The Economist, or if you were in the United States in something like the New York Times Magazine, something like that. They published as news my section on the ranches. And I never expected that to happen. I just, I thought, you know, my book will be in the cultural pages and the book review pages. So I actually had to leave Mexico for two months after that happened, because it was such a shock. <laughs> so this is the, the character who, who, is, um, who is stolen and comes back is called Paula, and she explain, explains to the protagonist, whose name is Lady Di, after the princess, and there's a whole reason in the book as to why she carries the name of the princess. Uh, so she, I'm able to bring uh, Paula back from being stolen because I knew where she'd been from all that research. So this I did invent, that, uh, that the women would burn themselves with uh, cigarettes in order to be recognizable if they were found dead. People would know that they were girls who had been stolen. So this is the, the moment in the book when Paula returns. Why do you have those cigarette burns on your arm? Oh, but we all have them, Lady Di. She looked down at the inside of her arm, stretching it out before her, 
as if she were showing me the book of a page. Sorry, the page of a book. If you've been stolen, you burn the inside of your left arm with cigarettes. Why? I don't understand. Are you crazy, she asked. Are you stupid? I'm sorry. A woman decided it long, long time ago, and now we all do it, she said. If we're found dead, someplace everyone will know we were stolen. It's our mark. My cigarette burns are a message. I looked at the pattern of circles on her arm as she continued to hold her limb, stretched out like an oar into the jungle air. You do want people to know it's you. Otherwise, how will our mothers find us? It was almost dark. We have to go now, I said. Come with me, I'll take you. Her mother was standing at the front door waiting. She held a baby bottle filled with milk in one hand. It's time for my baby to go to bed, Concha said. What on earth were you doing out in the jungle? Paula didn't answer and went straight into the house. Her mother walked me out to the edge of their property. Did she say anything to you, Concha asked. Don't say anything to anyone, Concha said in a panic. How did they know she was here? Who watched and knew a beautiful girl lived up here? They came for her. They knew what they were coming for. If they know she's back, if they find out, they'll come back and get her. We have to leave. There's no time. In a day or so, I've been planning, Lady Di. We're escaping. What did she tell you? She told me about the cigarette burns. Did she tell you that she did it to herself? Did she tell you that all the women who have been stolen do this to themselves? I nodded. Do you believe her? Concha asked. I don't believe it at all. I can't even imagine burning myself. That's impossible. Yes, I believe it. At that moment, Paula appeared behind her mother. She was like a white, vaporous creature. She held a baby bottle in one hand. She was naked. In the dark, under a river of moonlight, I could see the nipples of her breasts, the black hair between her legs, and the constellation of cigarette burns all over her body. I could see the cigarette-burned stars that made up Orion and Taurus. Even her feet were covered in the round burns. Paula had walked through the Milky Way, and every star had burned her body. So that is the return of Paula. So to, to write the book, I, I spent a lot of time in Guerrero and in Acapulco talking to women uh, and finding out what was going on there. And then I was asked to be and elected to be president of Penn Mexico. And at that time, there was only one thing to do, which was to deal with the killing of journalists in Mexico. So right now we have almost 100 journalists killed in the last 12 years. Just this year alone, we already have four journalists killed. So it was, it was uh, quite tremendous and it continues to be because obviously if you have no press, you cannot have a democracy. And so I spent those three years spending a lot of time in rural parts of Mexico talking to 
uh, the families of journalists who had been killed or who were disappeared. So even though I wasn't working on the book, in a sense I was working on the book. And, um, and sort of getting a sense of what was going on in the country because girls were also being robbed in other states, especially in the state of Veracruz. And it was also during doing that work with Penn Mexico that even though I had been a member of Penn for 12 years, no more, 22 years, uh, I'd never had to call on this extraordinary family of writers. And it was amazing to suddenly say, we have to do something about the killing of the journalists and we have to change the law. Because the law at that time in Mexico was that the killing of a journalist was a state crime. So you would have local governments investigating very often their own criminal behavior. So it was a huge thing to be able to change the law to make the killing of a journalist a federal law. And so I was able to call on all the presidents of Penn centers in the world, which is 100, 150 centers, 100 countries, all the Nobel Prize winners, the Swedish Academy, to come together to create a campaign of shame on the Mexican government. And it's really such an extraordinary organization. I have to bring it up a little bit, as I was just elected president of Penn International. And just so that all of you know that everybody all over the world is working pro bono. Nobody works with a salary. And we are all working and have been working for almost 100 years to defend freedom of expression and the power of literature. <clears throat> so getting back to my book, in, in this, with this novel, I have um, lived very strongly uh, the power of literature. When I wrote this book, I only wrote it because I couldn't sleep and I was uh, horrified by the thought of these little girls being stolen. And that was the motivation and a literary motivation because subject matter matters to me, but literary intention matters more. And the book won this uh, Sarah Curry Humanitarian Award and suddenly was bought all over the world. And I was invited to Congress to speak about what was happening in Mexico. So suddenly I was there with, with senators and congressmen uh, talking about a novel and defending people that I invented. It was an incredibly surreal experience and talking about them as though they were alive and, and this had really happened. And Again, it made me think about the history of the novel and how important the novel has been for social change. If you think of novels like uh, Oliver Twist, uh, Dickens, that changed uh, child labor laws in England. The books of Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre changed property rights for women. The same can be said about, in France, Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, changed the way we looked at the poor, or uh, Zola's novel on the minors, Germinal, changed conditions for minors. And you think of these novels, and you can't even think of the journalism that was being written at that time. So again, it underscores the incredible power that a novel has. Harper Lee just died, and I was thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird, how that novel really set a tone of ethical behavior in the United States, uh, and, and a kind of moral compass, which sadly seems to have disappeared. One of Mexico's problems, huge problems, is the guns. And my new book is about the guns. I've written a lot about the guns coming into Mexico from the United States. And 
the latest statistic is that if the guns were not coming to Mexico, 47% uh, of US gun dealers would be out of business. So imagine. So I think um, I'll just read a little piece. The third part of the uh, novel takes place in the women's jail. And I'll just read a tiny piece of that and then we'll talk. So this is Aurora telling uh, Lady Di why she's in jail. I killed five men. Isn't that so special? They were gathered at the ranch for a meeting. It took them two days to die in a hospital in Tijuana. The police came and arrested me when the doctors proved that the men had been poisoned. The police tested the coffee cups and they tested positive for poison. And I'd even washed them over and over with Ajax. Everyone knew I made the coffee for the rats' meetings. Everyone knew that there was a bottle of rat poison in the rats' kitchen under the sink. Rats need to be poisoned, right? Aurora rummaged through one of her plastic supermarket bags. She unknotted a bag filled with buttons and a stack of nail files that were held together with a rubber band. From here, she also pulled out a small pile of old newspaper clippings. Here, read this. If you don't believe me, it was even in the newspapers. I read the newspaper article and then handed the clipping back to her and she placed it back into the pile. She was so proud of killing those men. It was her act of justice. I boiled the water. I added the coffee. I let it sit. Yes. I placed the cups on a tray with a bowl of sugar. I could hear the men talking in the dining room. I stirred the coffee grounds in the pot. Yes. Aurora pa paused and tried to take a breath. She seemed able to, only able to breathe out. She tried to breathe in, not only with her lungs, but also with her whole body, in heaves, but failed. How did you do it? It just took one minute. It was easy. I took out the bottle of rat poison from under the sink. I poured it into the coffee. It was so easy. It was like adding sugar or coffee, mate. I reached over and took her arm. The surface of her skin felt coarse, as if she were still covered in beach sand. I looked into the sea landscape of her eyes and saw the whales and dolphins. Thank you. Okay. Um, thanks, Jennifer. Thank I'll open it up to questions very shortly. We've still got a fair bit of time, so I'll just... Um, start off. Now, I have so many questions, but thankfully you actually answered one already, which I was going to ask about, is there a power in literature and in the novel to reach people and affect social change in a way that news and journalism cannot, but you've, you've just shown us that yeah. that's, that's, that's definitely the case. And um, so I'll, I'll go to the novel itself. Now, obviously it deals with a lot of um, dark, <laughs> material mm -hmm. and quite um, devastating material, but the novel itself is written and, and the, the protagonist, um, Lady Di, is with, with such a lightness and she has this very, 
mature and like philosophical acceptance almost of her life and, and, and these events that are going on, which is um, obviously intolerable. Now, it would have been understandable and easy to inject a lot of anger into that character. Was, um, was that a conscious decision to not do that, or did she just, did she just work out that way? Was that just was that her that from the much, beginning? In my case, yeah. as a writer, there's not that much conscious decision. Mm. Um, it's interesting, the more you write, and sort of with maturity, you're, you're, you are more confident in letting the unconscious sort of come in, and then you let go a bit. So the person who's really angry in the book is the mother. Yes. So the, the, there's a lot of anger in the mother. And in Lady Di, uh, I would say there's, she's more of an observation. She's observing more what, what is mm. going on. Yeah, but it, it's, she is observing, but all these events are also happening to yeah. her. And as the event progresses, she gets involved well more than, I guess, she... She gets drawn in in, 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 um, in a way that she obviously doesn't deserve to, but even right to the end, she sort of accepts. And, and um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you feel that you, you, you might not get out of the book what you think you're going to, get in, going into it, which I didn't. I wasn't expecting to feel that, um, that lightness to her character. I wasn't expecting you know, all that, that moving imagery. I, I thought that there would be a lot more intensity than... Which obviously there is, but it's all happening around her. So it's just that, that sort of um, contrast it, that really works. I think it has to do with the literary intention. Mm. I mean, uh, I'm always interested in poetry. I'm always exercising poetry as the, the thing that most interests me within the mm. prose. I'm always interested in how the divine and the profane coexist. Um, I'm also always looking to see how uh, people without power exercise power. That's a, a something that really interests me a lot. And uh, I guess this thing about not doing anything which makes my characters lose their dignity. I mean, they were already in a situation of such loss of dignity. Mm. So, I mean, in none of my novels ever will have sort of graphic sex scenes or graphic violence scenes. I mean, in the novel when... when uh, Paula says uh, that she's been gang raped on the way to the ranches. She, I mean, I would never like write that scene. Mm. Um, but she says to Lady Di, what can I tell you? I was like a plastic water bottle that everybody took a swig of. You know, to me, that's where the poetry is more powerful than if I were to really yes. describe what happened. But also if I described what happened, Paula would lose her dignity. We would be with her in that scene. So yeah. I don't like to do that to my characters. Yeah. Something that really gets me about, well, that really touched me in the book is, is the resilience of these women. So it's not just the, um, this fear of the, the, the drug cartels coming to take their daughters. The, the women living in this remote jungle um, a community, which is a community almost, well, comprised of women because men have left. So mm -hmm. you bring a lot of other issues into it as well, which, you know, about the, the uh, immigration into the, into the States, then the state of the economy. Mm -hmm. And so what, 
what other, obviously you had, you know, you were driven to write this or wanted to write this about these, these women affected by the drug cartels, but was the, is there other things that you want your audience to, yeah, or your I readers mean, to take? The novel has sub-themes. So one of the sub-themes is this, how the migration of men to the United States or men being victims of violence uh, or men simply going to another state within the country looking for work has left behind these communities that are communities only of women. So what I wanted to explore a lot, the book is very much a book also about uh, how women feel losing the protection of men and the love of men. So it's very, I mean, that's embodied in the mother, the, mm. the, the despair she feels to have lost her man. And uh, at one point she says, uh, living without a man is like sleeping without dreams. And I think that's very true for these communities without men, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. So it isn't a sort of book of, oh, men are terrible. It's not at all. I mean, men I think are very honored in the book and, and their absence is mm -hmm. a painful absence. Yeah. Then another sub-theme is the use of herbicides and insecticides, yes. which threads throughout the whole book. Um, what happens at the, in the first part of the book is that, and this happens in many countries, including Colombia, is that they dump paraquat on the fields of marijuana and coke and poppy fields. But what happens in many of these countries is that they, they pay the army not to dump it, but they have to get rid of it. They can't come back to base with it. So they'll dump it wherever. So uh, the, these communities live in also in fear that the paraquat is going to fall on them. And so there's that. Uh, and I have to say that Colombia just seven months ago decreed no more paraquat because this ruins the land for yeah. you know, centuries. It's really bad. And, and then there's uh, the use of insecticides. And, and then in the jail, in the women's jail, at the end, there's... She's completely, she, Aurora, the character who, who puts the rat poison in, she's given the job of uh, fumigating the jail, but she's become completely poisoned by the fumigation. So that's a theme, yeah. uh, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, so there are all these, oh, another sub-theme is television knowledge. I'm very interested in how uh, you can go to these communities, not just in Mexico, it occurs in Africa, it occurs in Central America, in parts of Asia, where people are so poor and they have a dirt floor, but yet they have a television. And yet they're able to watch all these things on television without any proper sort of academic education to understand what they're seeing. And so I call that in the novel television knowledge, which is something really new when you think that television is actually a quite new form of, of knowledge. So Lady Di's mother loves to watch documentaries, but she doesn't really understand it. But it allowed me as a writer to bring in all kinds of, like for example, in that first scene I read, she said like the, the, the burials, were, the ancient burials she'd seen on television, well, because even though she lives in a dirt floor with you know, a cow outside, she still can see the pyramids of Egypt mm -hmm. on her television screen. So it cr creates this really strange knowledge. So yeah. I'm interested in that. Too. Yeah, and, and, uh, and speaking of that, there's, um, there's quite a bit of that in, in the book about, um, if, like you're writing about a particular community in a, in a particular 
country with with their immediate problems, but there's a lot of cross cultural references. Um, the most obvious one being, of course, the the protagonist's name, Lady Lady Di, which I won't get into why she's called that um, because it's it's a, it's a treat in a, in in the in the novel. But just you know the shows they watch and and so this very much sense of it's it's Mexico, but we. It's it's Mexico like today, and like the whole world is no no one exists, and no country can exist in isolation anymore. Right. And so that brings me into the um, you know the drug trade itself, is that it's not really just a problem for Mexico because you know where are those drugs going, and where are the weapons coming from that they use? Terrible. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, and yeah, so was that obviously that was another you know deliberate decision to sort of show that the, the, these these walls between culture don't really exist anymore. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for example, when they find the guns in Acapulco in the part yeah. of the novel, they're wrapped in an American flag, because I wanted to make it very clear to the reader where they'd come from. Yeah. Because yeah. we have this tendency to, to detach ourselves in the West when, from, from other goings-on in the part of the world, and, and well, where that's not us and we're not like that and, and we have nothing to do with that violence, but unfortunately we, we do. So, um, and that relationship between the US and Mexico in terms of that drug trade is, well, it's very strong, um, as, as you show. I think we've got a question up on microphone too. Sure, I'd like to ask a question about your role as a human rights defender. You mentioned that you had to leave Mexico for two months after this article was published and I understand the number of years that you've been researching and writing on this topic, you've put your own personal life at risk, I, I imagine. Is, I've, uh, I'm a human rights lawyer as, lawyer as well. I have colleagues who go to Mexico and act as human shields to other human rights defenders there. Would you be able to elaborate on the dangers and challenges you've had to face writing on this topic? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that... I, it's funny how it takes a while to know who you are. You know, I remember that great quote of Miles Davis, the great jazz player. He said, man, it takes a long time to sound like yourself. <laughs> so I didn't know this about myself, but I've come to understand that my indignation is greater than my fear. And it took me a while to understand that about myself. Um, actually, I didn't feel in that much danger uh, researching the novel. The time that I felt danger was when I was president of Penn, Mexico. Then I received death threats and had strange things occur. Uh, and I really realized what we all know uh, is that women and girls don't matter very much. But journalists are very dangerous people. And so I was able to kind of actually feel that contrast. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, Microphone one. Oh. Um, oh, hello. So it's a two-parter question. <clears throat> the first one is, in that, re that 10 years' worth of research, was there ever a moment where you didn't, where you thought of writing an entirely non-fiction story and using all that facts just out there in the book? That's question mm -hmm. one. And second part of that question is, did, your, did the narrative come first um, or did your research then form that narrative? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I did write quite a lot of journalistic pieces on, um, on, the, on drug culture and on guns. I've written a lot of journalistic pieces on guns. I've, I have one on, uh, which is called the, the, the Church of Gun, 
on, on the NRA and on the NRA Museum in, in outside of Washington, D.C., and I have an, another piece called Machine Gun Bouquets, just a lot about the guns. So I've done sort of both. But the thing about writing the novel is that uh, it allows me to use poetry, it allows me to use my imagination, and also I don't have that incredible trust with my reader. I mean, if you're doing journalism, the pact that you enter with your reader is that you know your sources are right, everything that you're saying is true, and it's very hard even to do that when you're in that kind of place. For example, some journalists have asked me, oh, can you find Lady Di's, the person Lady Di's mother, the, the person who told you about the holes? I can't find her. You know, it's been 10 years. I don't know where she is, you know, so, so um, or more than 10 years now. So it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to write this and, and do it with all the proper sources and everything. And then in terms of writing it, it I think the, the novel, I knew when I heard about the holes, I knew that the holes, that it was going to be the most fragile people. Uh, but as, I, as I, I heard her voice, at, at a certain point I hear the voice, and I really liked her voice because she didn't feel sorry for herself. Um, she was feisty and, and uh, she just sort of accepted her lot. I really liked that. So it was like a sense of hearing her, and she does tell the story. But then, of course, I would have to look things up. Like, I would remember that the, 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 the road to Acapulco, that, that the stone was pink, that they cut the highway through. And, uh, and to me, I remember thinking, you know, that it looked like scraped skin. And that's what I wrote in the novel. But then I thought, is it pink? Am I right? You know, so I'll maybe take a drive and make sure that it was pink, you know. So, yeah, so it's con you're constantly researching as you write, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, microphone two. Hello, Jennifer. Um, my question to you is just basically, given your research in this area and your interactions with these women, did you yourself come to conclude on what you think needs to change um, in order to kind of counteract the epidemic of stolen women? Well, I think there's many things that need to be changed. I mean, on a global level, women's lives have to matter, and they don't matter. And, you know, now that I'm president of Penn and the first woman... Um, there are things that I want to do about seeing within something like Penn, seeing violence against women as censorship. So, but yes, I mean, I think it's incredible that a, a snakeskin belt is more valuable than a girl. How did that happen? You know, so, um, so yeah, I think fundamentally there's that problem. I mean, in Mexico, if you go to the police station and you say, they stole my car, it's a big deal. It's like your car. What was it? What was the make? And what color was it? And when did you buy it? And you know, how many miles? I mean, it's a big deal. But if you go and say, you know, my daughter was stolen. Oh, you know, she'll come back. She's probably with her boyfriend. You know, it's not important. So that has to change everywhere. Um, then in terms of Mexico particularly, Mexico cannot solve its problems without a decisive uh, action from the United States. I mean, it's a terrible marriage. Mexico can't do it alone. And as long as they're consuming drugs in the United States and it's a criminal problem as opposed to a health problem, it should be changed to be a health problem, 
Um, but obviously it's a criminal problem because that, that means that you, know, you can build jails and uh, you can make a lot of money and give a lot of money to the military to watch over the border and you know, it's, it's big business. And then you have the guns. And as we've seen in this election right now in the United States, I mean, they have a relationship that's insane with guns. So, and they're not going to want to get rid of the amount of money that they're earning off of Mexico. So yeah, I mean, Mexico can't deal with this by alone. Thank you. Thank you. One. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you. It was very interesting to hear. And I spent um, about almost 18 months in Mexico several years ago. And everything you spoke about, um, I'd had similar conversations with people about as well. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what your the social and cultural experience was like for you researching this and what sort of insights you learned about women within Mexican culture because there's obviously the very strong um, machismo culture um, and also how you went about talking to women about this because really it is it, it feels like a collective trauma when you're there um, and I'm just wondering your insights around talking. I imagine that you talk, talked a lot to women about this and what that experience was like for you and what it was like for them to actually have a space to open up and, and talk about these sorts of traumas. Well, I was raised in Mexico. Um, my parents moved there when I was six months old. So I am, I am one of these Mexican women. And so I don't look it. But um, when I'm in Mexico, I mean, I speak perfect Spanish, I know my way around, I'm from that country. So I don't, I don't ever, uh, in these encounters, there isn't a feeling that I'm a foreigner or that I've come from another country to study them. You know, I'm one of them. And one thing that I think almost any journalist will tell you is that everybody wants to tell their story. So there was never a problem of people not wanting to tell me their story. Uh, but in terms of what remains, in terms of the, the mothers with the girls that, that were stolen, I'm still in touch with a few of them. But one thing that has happened, and it's interesting because we have at this conference um, the, the woman who wrote uh, Orange is the New Black. Uh, so one of the things that's happened, Piper, what's her last name? Chairman. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's been amazing is that, of course, the women that I met in jail are still in jail. So they love this book. And it's like, <laughs> it's like their favorite book in the jail, and they're so proud of it. And, and the other thing that happens is I get letters from, from women from jails all over the world. That's something I never expected to happen. Um, because my experience was that the jail was actually a really loving place. And uh, so I think that women prisoners around the world have, have related to that. One of the most shocking things uh, that I found dealing with the women's jail was on Visitor's Day in Mexico City, the men's jail and the women's jail are side by side. They can even see each other through certain windows and that's a whole other story that I could write three novels about. <laughs> but um, on Visitor's Day, nobody goes to visit the women's prisoners. So there's tremendous queues to visit the men, blocks and blocks and blocks, and there'll be a scraggly little few, a grandmother, and to visit the women. 
And this really broke my heart. And to see the women get on Visitor's Day, you know, fixed up and made up and dressed up, and then wait and wait and wait, and nobody would come to see them. And I have now found out that this is true all over the world. So again, back to the other question about women having value. I mean, right there, just, I mean, I would love to be able to do a research project of doing the visitor's log and seeing in every country how many people are visiting the women prisoners and how many people are visiting the men prisoners. That tells us a lot about how we view women. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Two. I was really interested in what you had to say about the power of the novel and I'm just wondering if that's something you've always known or if there was an experience where it was like an epiphany and you've, you really um, realised the, the, um, the positive impact that you can have and just wondering what um, you hope for with your novel, what you hope will happen as a result of it. Well, I think it's something that I've always known because I've always loved to read and I think of myself even more as a reader than a writer, actually. Um, and people in novels are often m more real to me than real people. And I realized that I had passed this on to my children because m my daughter had to see some unfortunate relatives. And she wrote me this email that said, Mama, I felt just like Elizabeth Bennett. And I thought, oh, she's my daughter. <laughs> You know, immediately everything was being related to fiction. So, so yes, ever since I was little, I, I, I could feel that about. But yes, I mean, I think that with Prayers for the Stolen, it's made me think more deeply about the role of the novel historically. And, and, it's, and it is, and historically has been a place, uh, a powerful place of change. Just on that point, you've said before that it, it ignited a a bit of a storm in Mexico, right? It's a lot of people didn't actually know, even in Mexico, that, that this yeah, was happening. They didn't know it was happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing. Um, Thank you. I think we've got someone behind. There's no one there, yep. Okay. Um, God, it's really loud. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure how to ask this, but um, I know you've done a lot of research into, I guess, the women of drug, drug traffickers, and you talked a lot to the mothers of women who are still in. But I kind of have a question about uh, this particular experience of being stolen, being taken, and perhaps coming back is, is not your particular experience. So you're Mexican, you have a feel for the impact and how it mm -hmm. is. How do you feel about, um, how do you express this? Because in a sense, you speak for women who experience this who are more vulnerable than you inherently through education and class mm -hmm. and affluence. How, how did you, because you might carry your natural bias mm -hmm. in a way, how, how was it or how did you try to speak for them in a way that is truly authentic to that experience? Because perhaps not in, not in your novel, because you sort of said how you researched it and how you form your opinions, but in other, in other books and other novels, it's often those who, are, who have more, who speak for those who have less, and sometimes those stories mm -hmm. are not truly authentic. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Sure. Okay. Well, I think, you know, the novelist doesn't have to even experience anything that the novelist is writing about. I mean, historically, that it hasn't been, uh, you know, um, something that has to be. Yeah. Uh, I think that in a lot of... Um, 
sort of, if we want to talk about like politically correct, you know, really giving the authentic experience, mm -hmm. I think that we're losing the whole power of imagination, which is actually, you know, so enormous and so amazing. Uh, I guess, you, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I guess I asked a question because you said you went to, to Congress and you were talking about Mm -hmm. you had to defend fictional characters which yeah. live in a fictional space and you add and take away from fact because mm -hmm. you can. And I wonder how you have a vision of how that is portrayed. It's a fiction that conveys a truth. Yeah. Whereas if you go to sort of Congress, how much of your fiction are people taking as absolute fact and yeah. therefore that's, that's the worry. Mm -hmm. Not the worry, but I think that would be a struggle. Like, I can read your okay, book. Okay, we'll, we, yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll, we'll just leave that one there. Is that okay? Yeah. Well, well, I just want to say, I mean, let's just think of Dickens for a minute. I mean, his description of these little skinny boys being used to sweep the chimneys um, in Dickensian England, you know, and, and how they would be completely covered in the coal dust and they couldn't see. And I mean, he didn't have to be in a chimney with a broom to be able to know what that was. And in Congress, obviously, I mean, one has to represent oneself correctly. I never, ever represented that the novel was anything but fiction based on research. Yeah. So, Did, thanks. Just on a related point, do you think that novels like this sort of blur the line between art and, and activism? Because I, I've spoken to you know, other writers who write also about, well, about misogyny mm -hmm. and about, you know, uh, f you know, they fiction, write fiction about real life. And they tell me, I, I say this because I'm speaking to one this afternoon, that mm -hmm. I'm speaking as an artist, I'm not an activist. But mm -hmm. do you think that a novel like this well, blows that line? I think most uh, novelists, if they're literary novelists, their mm -hmm. intention is, is literature. That's their yeah. primary intention. Yeah. They're not on a soapbox. The soapbox happens because you're writing about what hurts you. Yeah. So it, it sometimes happens, it sometimes doesn't happen, um, or what bothers you or what upsets you, but not necessarily because you're on a soapbox with your book, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, at least in my case, it's not the, I, I'm never ever thinking about activism or changing the world, ever. I'm just okay. thinking about writing the best book I can write. And there is this, a moment when I'm writing that the most mysterious thing happens, which is I fall madly in love with everybody. But I mean, it's a real love affair. And, yeah. and I feel like, I mean, with these girls, all I want to do is take them home and I want to put them in bed. I want to give yeah. them some warm milk and cookies. And I, I don't know, I just feel this love, tremendous love toward them. Yeah, well, you feel it reading, reading it as well. Mm. So, and um, microphone one. It's with much regret there's only about a dozen men here. Yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> do, you, do you try and reach out to men as well? Well, I just wrote an article for Germany uh, on feminism because uh, they, they never had the second wave of feminism. And so, in fact, Angela Merkel has talked about this. And so they asked me if I would write. And, and the, my essay is called The Radical Inclusion of Men. I mean, we really need men and uh, to be involved. And in the pen work that I'm going to do, which includes changing the charter to include gender and writing a manifesto on gender that can be used all over the world, seeing violence against women as censorship, because in pen we always have to stay on the line of freedom of expression and literature. Uh, but in doing all that work, I will have... Uh, 
a lot of men on board working with me. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for that question. So maybe that's one to note for next year. Bring your men <laughs> with you to these sorts of events because what we're talking about here has to, they have to be included in these conversations. We've got time for one, maybe two questions if they're really quick. Microphone two. Uh, g'day, thanks Jennifer. I live in Guatemala, which is a similar situation. A lot of what you've said resonates with um, there, uh, including about television knowledge. Everyone in Guatemala watches reality TV from America, like the, the Hoarders show and the show where they auction the things that are in, in storage places. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, um, I'm interested in guns and I wonder if you could say something about your next book, which is, I guess, about guns. Well, first about Guatemala. A very important character in the book is from Guatemala. It was important. This is where an intellectual decision was made. Uh, Guatemala had probably one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Most people are not aware of that. And so for me, it was incredibly important that there be a character from Guatemala. And also, uh, Mexico really has two borders. It has the uh, border, the vertical border going up from Central America to the United States, and then it has the border that we all know, the horizontal border. So you, it really has two. And I did a lot of research actually on the train, um, interviewing women that from, mostly from Guatemala, some from El Salvador, that go up. And I found out things, for example, you know, tremendous things that this is in the book, you know, like, for example, that they don't want to drink water because they don't want to have to urinate, because if they get off the train, or they get off the bus, that's when they're, they're stolen, or that's when they're raped, or that's when they're killed. I mean, just something like as simple as going to the bathroom is such a risky thing to do. So, uh, so anyway, so when you read the book, if you read the book, you'll see that Luna is a Mayan Indian from Guatemala and a very important person in the jail. About the guns. So, I always knew that I would be writing the book about the guns, so actually it's called Gun Love, and it's a diptych to Prayers for the Stolen. In Prayers for the Stolen, and this is true, everybody told me about this American girl that lived up in one of the villages where the heroin labs were. So it's not a sequel, but it's sort of like a mirror. So it's uh, a girl also, Lady Di's age, and how, and it's, it takes place all in the United States, but it's a story about how the guns cross into Mexico. But done as a novel, in, in this kind of way that prayers is done. Yeah. Okay, one. Um, I have a, a question that maybe is kind of hard to answer, but uh, after or during your research, uh, did you hear any hope of like mothers or sisters or family? Because like in the ideal world, like world, we know what has to be done, but for them, they know that they may be far from there. So, well, one of the reasons that the the although I know of cases where girls have been stolen coming out of the movies in Mexico City, uh, in general, it's rural girls, and one of the reasons they're picked is that they don't even have birth certificates. So, I mean, one of the things that we could start doing is at least have them be, exist. You know, if you don't have a birth certificate, do you exist? How do you, how do you begin to claim somebody? So, but of course, places like Guerrero are so dangerous right now. I mean, you couldn't even really go there and try and start to do that. But just something that basic 
as having a birth certificate would help. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And last question. So no one misses out, great. Yeah. Jennifer, you gave us an experience of one of the girls, a woman that actually did come back, but that was an invented one, as you told yes. us in the book. Are there any known cases of ones that do come back? Do any ever come back? I've never met anybody who came back, but a friend of mine has said that he has met somebody who came back. I haven't met that person, but it's very rare to have them come back. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And, yeah, no, no more. Okay, well, on that note, we'll, um, we'll wrap it up. Thank you Thank so you. much, Jennifer. Thank you so much.